Hey, yo. Welcome to the show. This is the Shared Interest Podcast. I am the host. I am Tommy. And I'm a Gen Xer. And that means that Seattle sound, the grunge phenomenon, all of that stuff was a pretty huge part of my adolescence. And by now, you're probably aware that one of the key figures from that era, Mr. Chris Cornell, passed away last week. And amid the outpouring over that, my buddy Eli shot me a message and he said that we should get together, do a podcast, and do our best to celebrate the life and times. So this is that podcast. Obviously, music is very personal. It's highly subjective. The whole one person's trash is another person's treasure, all of that. Personally, I'm not very much into judging or critiquing music or any type of art. I'm pretty flaccid on awards, Grammys, stuff like that. But Soundgarden is a band that means a lot to me. And I'll always think of them as ground zero for what became grunge. Even that is a little strange because they were pretty much the last ones to cash in on it. Regardless of any of those commercial aspects, I've spent so much time with their music. It's so unique and it's so powerful. And it really was the polar opposite of the glam rock, spandex, girls, girls, girls stuff that was dominating the pop culture coming into the 90s. I mean, those boys from Seattle drove a stake right through the heart of all of that glam excess. Again, I don't have an impulse to bash anybody's music and Motley Warrant, Poison Tesla Snake. It wasn't my thing, but it's easy to look at the success of those bands, and they brought a lot of joy to a lot of people. But for me, I was just captivated by Bad Mower Finger, and that voice was ripping through the speakers, and it was something that had an instant and long-lasting, obviously, connection for me. There used to be a ritual where you would go to the music store the day that a big record dropped, and of course, I was there getting super unknown the day that it came out. All of that kind of coincided with the dawn of the internet. So I'm sitting there with my Netscape Navigator and my AOL dial-up, and I'm just pumping Soundgarden, and that really was the soundtrack of my youth. I had no idea then that I was going to go on to become a musician, and I would gain an understanding of what it's like to be a recording artist and to be in a touring band. It was a fairly odd existence, even for the short burst. Um, I'll never forget looking at my brother when Jim Rome started using my band's music as bumper music on his sports talk show, and we were totally huge clones, so that was super exciting for us, but I'll also never forget our guitar tech's lifeless body being wheeled out of our rehearsal studio or trying to explain to the police how it came to be that there was so much methamphetamines everywhere. It's a bit of a roller coaster. But for people on the ride at the level of Soundgarden, Audioslave, I, I can't even imagine the wild ups and downs that become your day-to-day life. Very tragically for Chris Cornell, the ride came to an end on Thursday in Detroit. It was profoundly shocking and tragic. Eli and I connected to talk about it and to do our best to kind of celebrate the music amid the sadness. So this is our conversation. Not a very great subject, as many of you are probably aware by now, some terrible news out of Detroit, and that is Chris Cornell uh, passed away. Obviously, 
you know, sympathy for him and the position that he was in and the circumstances that his life ended. And I feel terribly for his family. On the line now, my friend Eli to kind of talk through what has happened to the best we can, just kind of celebrate a life that uh, has ended way too soon. Yeah, um, I'm with you. Thanks for having me on. I mean, it, you pretty much nailed it on the head. I mean, the, not just the music community. That guy was, uh, it feels more like he was more of an artist than a lot of musical artists were. It's more of a cultural thing than it is a musical thing, in my opinion, because he weighed in. I mean, he brought in a whole era with him. It wasn't just Pearl Jam. It wasn't just Nirvana. Soundgarden was gigantic, gigantic force to the grunge, the grunge movement. And, of course, Temple of the Dog. He went through this whole thing back, what was it, 30 years ago when tell me out here, Pearl Jam's original band. Oh, uh, Mother Love Bone. Thank you. When Mother Love Bone had to break up because of the suicide, his roommate, uh, what was his name, Corey? God damn it, I'm really bad right now. No, it's okay. Uh, Andy Wood. Andy Wood was his roommate. Andy Wood, thank you. Okay, let's say all the other crap. All right, so when Andy Wood took his life, or did take his life, passed away you know, from a heroin overdose, he and Chris Cornell were roommates then, and it really, really hurt him. It really touched them. Like, yeah, no, um, ex- it was pretty tragic. So here's what I can, here's my understanding of how that went down. And it's, um, I was still just a kid. The tragedy of Andy Wood's passing was it wasn't like a heroin overdose where they found his lifeless body. His girlfriend found him and he was kind of comatose. They brought him to the hospital and he, he responded, but he had had an aneurysm that made him brain dead essentially. So he was Mm -hmm. kept on life support for about three days during that three day interval. All the guys from, Mother Love Bone, Stone Gossard, Jeff Amet, who would go on to Pearl Jam, uh, Bruce, mm-hmm. and then of course Chris Cornell. All of the the Seattle music scene, which was pretty tight, was you know the understanding it wasn't very competitive like Los Angeles with all of the glam bands trying mm-hmm. you know to one up each other, and even in the metal scene um, like the Metallicas and stuff like that, all of those guys always trying to one up each other. But there was more of a brotherhood was always mm-hmm. kind of the feel that came out of Seattle. And what a terrible, terrible way for one of your brothers to pass is to to be alive, but brain dead. And they all had to go to the hospital and see him there. And I definitely have heard Jeff Ament say on more than one occasion, a lot of people kind of that was the death of innocence for that scene, which, mm-hmm. you know, well before any of that Kurt Cobain, before any of them even knew that they were going to be internationally famous and, and big time money rock stars in 1990. It was March. It was March of 1990. Chris Cornell mm-hmm. had just come back off the road from the Loud Love tour. And so he that band is about to go through some major changes as well in that period. For anyone who might not know, uh, Soundgarden started as Chris Cornell, Kim Thale, and Hiro Yamamoto were as a three-piece, and Chris Cornell actually played drums. Mm. I never met Chris Cornell. I don't know Chris Cornell, but you know, having spent some time on the fringe of the music business, if I can say it like that, without getting into name dropping or stuff, you do you crisscross paths with people who know each other, and you kind of you hear some rumors. And, you know, Chris was a guy who was pretty complex and he had bouts of depression. Gosh, it's difficult for me. I don't have the right perspective. I'm not a depressed guy. I've had a kind of charmed life. But I think I should pause right there and say to me, those things are 
mutually exclusive though because there are plenty of people who have charmed lives that experience intense depression so it's i think it's a misnomer and it's a dangerous thought pattern to say oh my god this guy he was a rock star he had it all he was he was charming he was good looking he had all this money all this fame he could do whatever he wanted how could he have spend a minute of sadness it's like well there's a clinicalness to this that people should probably respect and I don't want to be the heavy and tell, I mean, if people want to be judgmental, then go be judgmental, but that's not where I'm coming from. And I think there's probably a, a, a lot of respect to be paid to the many, many people out there that deal with depression and to have it be such a crippling, debilitating thing to put you in a mindset where you end up on pharmaceuticals to try and manage it. But then as a, perhaps as a side effect of that, um, you, you're dealing with a, a very confused mind that made a very a very permanent choice, and uh, I, it, oh God, man, it's so sad. It, it's very very sad. It, it is sad, man. It, it is, and like you were saying, it was something I was going to touch on too. Is he is or was a uh, a very depressed individual? Had to, he was in and out of rehab several times. Um, most notably, that time before he was in uh, rehab for I think two months be- before uh, they got obviously together. That was part of the deal because they knew he had alcohol problems. Wow. It was mostly alcohol, but he was popping pills all during the eighties and nineties. So he, he he has never hit it that he's depressed and you know goes through that self medication. But supposedly he's been straight for years now. It's been like six years, I thought that he hadn't. You know, he hasn't drank or anything like that. Well, and yeah, now, I, I don't know, and I don't mean to speculate. Um, you know, sure. I, I think it's it's exactly. well reported by himself that you know he battled an oxy, you know, opioid dependency. Mm-hmm. Um, I I try not to be ghoulish. I haven't gone and and really searched up a lot of news on it, but just in being plugged in a little bit to social media and and the news stream, I have seen that his wife said that there there was you know he had called her perhaps incapacitated uh in in the midst of taking too much medication and the medication was prescribed stuff like that so mm-hmm. it's not a good scene man not good she she put that out there that she thinks he took too much of his anxiety medicine and that made him feel more depressed and maybe that's what made him kill himself and i, I mean i'll share something with you um i'm on medication when i was trying when my doctor was putting me on meds he had to switch, you know, we were you know, basically trial and error kind of thing. And when he put me on a few different things, I remember Will Butchin bring one of them. It made me more anxious. It made me more depressed. And like, I couldn't, like, I knew I wasn't who I was, but I was kind of like falling off the edge of what's the point of life kind of thoughts. And, and, and it could very easily be something like maybe he started a new medication or, you know, took too much of it or something like that. And that, that's what changed his opinion of life in that one day or maybe that one week that it was, you know, building up. And a lot of people, a lot of people put it into this, that, you know, because it's, it's Chris Cornell, right? He's famous. He has all this money. He's good looking. He's, you know, seems to have everything that he needs, beautiful wife and kids, all that stuff. He's still a human being at the center of it all. And the music's just his job. And money creates other problems sometimes. So you can't always say that, oh, if I was a millionaire, I'd never kill myself. But you don't, you don't know that.
guess everybody grieves in their own way. I think there's probably a space to kind of celebrate music and, and all the gift yeah. that that guy left behind. What an incredible catalog he put together. And he was such a prolific writer. The maturation of his his voice was just incredible. It was, you know, you could always tell that there was something really unique and really crazy in there. And when he learned to harness it, really empowered himself to become, I think, one of the most instantly recognizable voices. I'm looking at it right now, and, and I, I know I've done this before. I don't know how many true Soundgarden fans have gone back all the way to the 80s and listened to some of that early stuff. Right. Louder than love, screaming life. Like those, he, his voice was nothing like that. You can't even tell it's him. Like you were saying, it was just a loud, loud, cagey screaming. Like he was like a punk type of singer where you're screaming all the time. And like, like you said, it's just a bunch of energy that just had to be harnessed. And once he harnessed it and just pushed it all, like it started using melody in there, realized he had like three or four octaves in his, in his range. That's when the true Chris came out on on Bad Motorfinger, and it just like you said, it kept getting, uh, it kept changing as he got older. The maturation started becoming more like like some of his solo stuff. They sound like folk songs, and he's just got a clear, crisp voice, and he's just it's 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 just very soothing compared to where it was in the eighties. And that, that yeah, I give the man some credit for for realizing that he had that special special voice. Um, I'd like to ask you actually. Let me get uh, two, three, maybe five of your favorite songs. And if you want to comment on why uh, you like those specific songs, maybe it's because of something, you know, where you started listening to or you touched it, touched a spot in your heart. Uh, what, what, what couple songs do you have like that? Well, maybe I should answer it this way. So, so for me coming up, the older kids who really influenced my musical taste, they were all into Metallica and really hard speed metal. So if you want to call it like the 86 through 90 and that stage where really the older kids, the kids that are like 13 to 17, they're really helping shape my seven to 11 year old self into that. So I'm coming from a, I want to be cool to the older set that are all into master of puppets and injustice for all and, you know, Megadeth and all of those type of things. So Soundgarden had instant credibility in the metal club because they used Terry date was their producer. And he was a, a guy who, if people aren't familiar, he's really got this monster works catalog that he has been the producer engineer mixer and he started with the metal band from seattle go figure and they were called metal church and he did a, a record in the early gosh it was probably 85 84 ish he did the first metal church record and then he did another band from seattle that was a speed metal thrash metal band called sanctuary and they did album called refuge denied and they had a singer whose name was world dane and World was basically, it's kind of neat if people don't know, he was Sebastian Bach of Skid Row, but he was a metal version of it. He was a tall dude who had like this platinum long blonde hair. It was green. It was that nut. He was a nut grabber. Ah! You know, all of that type <laughs> of stuff. So it wasn't really, yeah. um, I wasn't really gravitated towards that, but he had credibility with who I you know, peer pressure, the guys who I wanted to impress as I was, yeah. you know, learning to play guitar and stuff like that. It was okay to learn how to play louder than love because it was a Terry date record. You could pull from it. I mean, the same guy who did overkill dream theater, if you knew them metal church, and then 
he's going to go on Terry Date's career. They're going to split. So Soundgarden's going to begin to work with producers who can really pull Chris Cornell out of Chris Cornell. In that time, that late 80s, early 90s, before grunge destroyed it all in 91, 92, kind of interrupted my own train of thought, but Pantera, Cowboys from Hell, was Terry Date's mm. huge record. So he goes in that direction and starts doing yeah. all the, he does Volga Display of Power. Later, he does Fishbone. He does Prong. He does the Deftones, White Zombie. So you can see where Terry Date and that type of sound is going. And I don't think that's really where Chris is the primary songwriter. I don't think that's where he was going. The original question was, do you have favorite songs? I don't, I'm not into really ranking stuff in that manner i don't really participate in a lot of the you know what was soundgarden's best record or what's the best song i think that they're all just moments in time there's no way to say this probably without sounding like an asshole but because i ended up going on to be in a in bands that you know released and recorded music and stuff like that i don't i don't dwell too much on what's the best everything is is kind of especially when it's a singer songwriter like chris cornell and that's not to dismiss the, the songwriting contributions of Thale and Cameron and later Ben mm-hmm. Shepard, but it was really, it was Chris's band. I think that's a fair thing to Absolutely. say. Absolutely. They'll say the same thing. So, yeah, I think so. But I, I do, I think it's a fair thing. It was his vehicle to get his thoughts and his artistic expressions out. And I, I just, I'm not into saying that one of them was better than the other they're just they captured different thoughts or different moments in time in his life and god man i don't really have favorites but i will say that i have listened to super unknown from the the day it came out i listened to it probably every day for at least a decade just (laughs) if not all the way through at least parts of it and that might be a little psychotic and that might tell you more than i want to say about my personality and my ability (laughs) to just do the same thing over and over again that repetition doesn't bug me at all so sorry for the ridiculously long answer but um i listened to super unknown in ungodly amount of times my own question though i fell on black days and the day i try to live were two of the songs that got me through high school dude they're such great songs great songs man and they're off of, they're off your super unknown you and i are about the same age so like right when that stuff was coming out to begin high school it you know really helped you get through those days um so it was uh those two right there really touched me um but honestly a lot of his solo stuff is very very more my speed dude, it's such a prolific writer I think that the two songs that you picked are so great because they really demonstrate, in my opinion, his poeticness and the way that he constructed his lyrics, the way that they were always kind of pushing and pulling at each other, if I can say that. So like, um, fell on black days, you know, whomsoever I've cured, I've sickened you now, whomsoever I've cradled, I put you down. You know, it's always that, that push and pull back and forth. And the day I tried to live, I stole a thousand beggars change and I gave it to the rich. It's, it was never like a hack, you know, punny thing. It was always incredibly creative and in my opinion, and it's all this stuff is so intensely personal and people 
fucking hate Soundgarden, they obviously would have turned the podcast off 20 minutes ago now. But so (laughs) since I'm assuming I'm talking to people who are interested in Soundgarden music, it's the way that he put those things together was unlike anybody else. And things like my wave cry, if you want to cry, if it helps, if it clears your eye, you know what I mean? Again, everything that he did was so clever and it was so almost understated, purely brilliant, man, purely brilliant. And I, I obviously I see the outpouring of emotion senses passing, but I, I just, I don't know that it could ever be articulated the, the subtle greatness and the fact that they didn't ride the wave of the Nirvana Pearl Jam thing in that 92, mm. 90 window. I mean, it wasn't until 94 that Black Hole Sun and Spoon Man came out and really took yeah. them off. If I can make a quick point on that stuff, people say, oh, dude, they played Black Hole Sun to death. That's not the artist's fault. Anytime you have a song that's been repeated over and over again or played into the ground, they just went to the studio with the song that they wrote, mm-hmm. that they loved. They played it, recorded it pressed it and put it out it's the radio stations and the call request lines and the mtv you know total request live it's all of the people who played it into the ground and i hate when the artist kind of gets pinned for that it's like oh dude you know if i never fucking hear spoon man again i'm fine with that it's like well fuck man it's not their fault that everybody wanted to hear it a million times songs an amazing song and it's probably their most well-known song but if you ask them it's not their favorite song to play it's just people's favorite songs to hear so why should they be faulted for it i mean it's a great great song and if you heard it for the first time today you would say that just like you did the first time you heard it 20 years ago i really appreciate that i think that when i hear it for me for whatever reason it still always feels like the first time it's just there's something magical about that album from start to finish that just I, I God, man, I'll I'll never be able to hear it enough. Yeah. Well, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was gonna ask. What, what were your thoughts when obviously first got together? At first, I I was very excited about it, and you know, with all due respect to the players, because I, dude, I mm-hmm. I absolutely love Tommy. I love Tim. I I I hold Rage Against the Machine in a very special place. I think mm-hmm. that what they did, if I'm being in completely intellectually honest there there was an element of corporatization to what they did but their message Mm -hmm. transcended it so i I hold them in a a very special place and i love soundgarden just through and through with all my true heart i just the collaboration didn't work for me the one song doesn't remind me is the only audio slave song that i cared for and and that was more because it was a it was a chris song It, it, it was a lot of great pieces that didn't quite fit it was kind of like when the New Jersey Nets traded for, you know, the, the Kevin Garnett and Paul right. Pierce yeah, and put Jason Kidd out there to coach them. They're like, oh, we got all these great pieces, but it doesn't go together. But all right, we still got all these great pieces. Yeah, it's well, probably it's well, pretty analogous. Win there? Yeah, especially because at that point in their lives, in all four of their lives, they were already yep. financially set. They were already international yep. superstars. So the egos were already there as opposed to, you know, when Rage first came out, all of their egos were pretty much in check. They had a mission. They had a purpose. Mm-hmm. They were hungry. 
it's true of a lot of aggressive music. You know, take even the great Trent Reznor. When your music is fueled by angst and all of a sudden you've got residuals coming in, you've got soundtrack opportunities. And it's, I imagine it's really hard to stay super pissed. So I think that's yep. quite inverted from the depression thing, which, hey, man, no matter how much success you have, if yep. you're dealing with a, a clinical style depression, then, you know, that's a deep rooted issue that that needs care and maintenance from from qualified people, as opposed to just walking around being pissed off all the time. That shit goes out the window mm-hmm. at about, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but about 1.5, 1.6 million. And Joey, I'm not angry anymore. Seriously. Um, so... Let me get one more opinion out of you, and then I'll let you get going. I, I want to see if you feel like there's any uh, symbolism, whether intentional or not, with his last song that he played in Detroit that night. Gosh, I don't know. And that's probably not something that I would spend a lot of time thinking or speculating on. Whatever drove him to do what he decided to do, man, I, I don't want to look for signs or signals or something. I feel like I'm not qualified to do that. I'm not a mental health specialist and... I really, I don't have a take on whether he was trying to allude to what something that was going to happen. I, I don't know. I don't know. I just, and I wasn't trying to say that your question was coming from a malicious place or anything like that. Sure. So did you go and look at the set list by any chance to see if they had been closing with that? They'd been on that run for like shit. Oh, you know what? No, I didn't see if it's the, good call. Hold on. I'm on the line right now. Yeah, I don't do think they, uh, they're not like you 2 where they play the exact same set every night. They do no, shuffle it around. No, but no. Just, I would be interested to see if earlier in the run, if they had been closing with that yeah, every night, every third night or something like that. Yeah, I'm on it right now. Uh, let's see here. On the 7th, he closed with Blow Up the Outside World. 10th, they closed with Jesus Christ Toes. Oh, and then an encore, Slaves and Bulldozers. Good encore. Uh, yeah, that's not that encore at all. 12th. They closed with Beyond the Wheel. Almost done here. I'm seeing the 13th. Blow up the outside world. And then the 14th. Slaves and Bulldozers. So they did Rusty Cage. Here's his last set, the 17th. Rusty Cage, then Slaves and Bulldozers. And with In My Time of Dying, Refrain. So that's kind of weird. So yeah, I mean... I don't know. Maybe he did because he was playing plays and bulldozers early in the week. But anyway, just yeah, just I was just curious if you thought that it might have been something like. <laughs> Fuck it. So, ever... Hold on, I want to call you a bad closer name. <laughs> Terrible final question, <laughs> Sam Dyson. What else you got? All right, so here's <laughs> I got something else for you. So I've noticed this is, uh, on a bunch of his tracks, uh, especially with Audio Slave. A lot of them seem like driving songs. You ever listen to Soundgarden or Audio Slave exclusively on a road trip? Sure, for sure. I've I've definitely listened to Soundgarden on road trips for hours and hours and hours. Again, it just it kind of goes back to my my entire love of the band and everything. It's it's definitely been music that's been part of my life on a daily basis since 1994 before that i knew of them casually but i hadn't become you know my musical taste hadn't fully developed that point i was still super young and it wasn't until that mid late 90s where i really kind of refined the type of stuff that i was super into 
even though my favorite type of music of all time is 70s arena rock, which most of which was before mm-hmm. I was even born, basically. <laughs> so, but, you know, they say that people tend to gravitate to the music of their youth and in their teens and that stuff. So I didn't have a terrible high school experience. So I don't want to misrepresent and be like, oh, dude, you know, I was having this rough time. And there's because that would that would be a little disingenuous. But, you know, I still had soundtrack to my life. And, and Chris Cornell was a huge part of it, not to at all try and personalize what is his story and his, you know, his and his family's awful fucking time right now. But it just, oh, man, it, it's such an amazing, amazing run. And uh, I'm very, very sorry to kind of close it out because I know we both kind of got to hit the road here. But, man, it, not not the storybook ending that probably would have hoped no. for. We lost a good one. 